it's Tuesday night. But if you're going to sing the song, you might as well go ahead and put a praise on it tonight. Come on, what have you been believing God for? Put a praise on it tonight. What have you been asking God for? Put a praise on it tonight.
you can have it right now. You can get your peace right now. You can get your breakthrough right. Clap your hands one more time in the building tonight. of the Lord tonight. Hallelujah. High five about six people on the way to your seat. Tell them I got it. I got it. Tell them I got it. I, I got it. I got it locked up, strapped in. Whoa, I got it. Shoroboshaya. The old timers would say the world didn't give it to me. And the world can't take it away. I got it. I got it. I got it. Hallelujah. Hey, man, you can be seated for just a moment. I am so excited to be home tonight. Whoa. My goodness. I love y'all right back. I love y'all right back. I'm so grateful to be home and I was just, I'm telling you, I, I was three hours difference time zone. And so I tuned in to, to Sunday church, both services, and I was having a Holy Ghost time with you. How many of you grateful for what the Lord did this weekend? Are you grateful for what God did this weekend? If you were here Sunday morning, Bishop Raul Alviar Jr. preached a powerful word from God. And when he finished, there were eight people that received the Holy Ghost on Sunday morning. I think we ought to give God some praise. Yes, Lord. There were six people. Final count was six people that received the Holy Ghost in the altar. And then Raphael was baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of his sins. He came out of the water speaking in tongues as he received the Holy Ghost. Then Jessica was baptized in Jesus' name. She came out of the water speaking in tongues as she received the Holy Ghost. I think we ought to give God a great big praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. And I'm thankful for the ministry of my dear friend Bishop Alviar. And then Sunday night, Brother Judah Williams preached a tremendous, tremendous word from heaven to this house. How many of you made up in your mind, I won't let go tonight? Come on. Amen. And I'm, I'm so very grateful for all that the Lord did uh, this weekend. My only complaint is that I was not here with you. Amen. But I'm so grateful for what God has done and uh, I've been looking forward all week to getting to this desk. And tonight we're going to continue in our series of holiness. Anybody excited about the word of the Lord tonight? Amen. Stand with me all over the house if you would. Amen. If the Lord will help us tonight, I am going to try to teach this entire lesson in one setting tonight. And it will be the conclusion of these series of holiness lessons 
And uh, I have been urging you all along to go back and listen to previous lessons. Let your spirit be saturated. Take notes. Get you a notebook and just write holiness on the front of it. And just keep it full of notes and things that God speaks to you. And uh, again, I'll encourage you that even though this uh, will conclude the series, of course, we, we preach holiness all the time. Amen. We don't just save it for series of lessons, uh, but I encourage you to, uh, as often as you can, go back and, and make sure that we have the word of the Lord, not just in our heads, but written in our hearts. Amen. Amen. The book of Exodus chapter number three is where I want to invite you to read the word of the Lord with me tonight. And uh, I've got a long ways to go in a short amount of time and uh, I'm excited tonight. I'm going to use this verse of scripture as a launching point uh, for tonight's lesson. Exodus chapter 3 verse 22 says, But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters. And ye shall spoil, somebody shout spoil, spoil the Egyptians. And for a few moments tonight, I simply want to preach, teach about jewelry, a.k.a. the bling. I want you to find three people standing around you tonight. Tell them, I got the inside bling bling. Tell them, I got the inside bling bling. Amen. If you promise to teach and preach with me excitedly, you may be seated tonight. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. This verse of scripture is often used in a very, very elementary way to try and substantiate for some the wearing of jewelry. But when we read this scripture and it talks about uh, putting upon your sons and daughters, it is not talking about putting the jewelry or the raiment upon them as in wearing it as in clasping the earring or attaching a necklace. But instead, rather, you must understand the context of the scriptures. He is talking about the sons and the daughters helping to carry the jewels and the raiment out of Egypt. You understand that these jewels and jewelry would become the commerce and the wealth of Israel as they left Egypt. And later on in the scripture, you will find that they used these things even to build the tabernacle. 
And when the scripture speaks that ye shall spoil the Egyptians, this was a military custom that when you conquered a particular people that you would take all of their goods, their money, their riches, all of their commerce and produce and it would be a way that you conquered the people and a reward, if you will, for conquering them. And they had lived under Egyptian bondage for so long that the Lord allowed them to take those riches and those jewels as their spoil. The challenge comes when we begin to understand that because these people lived in Egyptian bondage for centuries, that they grew up many, many generations enculturated by Egyptian philosophies and ways of life. And so even though they were not natural born Egyptian people, they for the most part thought and acted and behaved in ways that were heavily influenced by the Egyptian culture. And so when God tells them that I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and you're going to be a brand new people and you're no longer going to live under Egyptian bondage, but you're going to be a people of my name. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of bondage. He brought them out of years of being in servitude to evil and wicked. Is there anybody with a test? testimony in the building uh, that you are grateful God brought you out uh, of bondage, uh, out of slavery, uh, out of servanthood uh, to the world, to the evils uh, of Satan and his kingdom. God brings them out of Egypt, but God's challenge is not getting them out of Egypt. God's challenge is getting Egypt out of them. And so in Exodus chapter 32, God brings Moses to the top of Mount Sinai and it is here that he establishes the constitution of the nation of Israel after they are delivered from Egypt. And when he leaves the people at the bottom of the mountain, uh, they, they were not sure uh, what was going on exactly. They did not know if Moses was coming back or what the finality of this situation was, Moses leaves a man by the name of Aaron in charge and he goes to the top of the mountain uh, to get the commandments from God. And so as Moses is getting from God what would define their culture, these People are at the bottom of the mountain and they are still trying to grasp the concept of their identity. And all they know is the worldly customs and culture of Egypt. And so when they finally thought in their mind that maybe Moses wasn't coming back and now what shall we do? The Bible says that they took all of the jewelry, the gold, uh, precious metals that they brought with them uh, from Egypt uh, and they melted it and molded it into uh, a golden 
calf. And if that was not bad enough, Aaron, the spineless leader, brings the calf in front of them. And when he presents it to them, now you have to understand that the calf was the likeness of the god Baal, the Egyptian god Baal. But when Aaron presents the golden calf, he says, Behold, the Lord Jehovah who has delivered you out of the hands of Pharaoh. He had the audacity to introduce the idolatry under the name of Jehovah. And I could preach a whole message tonight about sin that comes in the name of the Lord. Everything that has Christianity written on it uh, is not from God. Everything that calls itself gospel uh, is not from God. I wish I had a Bible reading church. Uh, everything that presents itself uh, as holy uh, is not the holiness uh, of God. Uh, we had better understand and get a revelation uh, of God's truth. And so he presents this golden calf that is made from the jewelry and the uh, items that they brought uh, from Egypt and he presents it to the people. And so the Bible says that when Moses comes down from the mountain, he finds them naked. Naked. That's different than naked. Dancing around the golden calf. All he saw was hips, lips, and fingertips. And he gets so angry because while he is on the mountain receiving the law, God's people are down at the bottom of the mountain already breaking the law that God was giving him. He was frustrated because he had brought them out of Egypt but they had not yet got Egypt out of themselves. And so then when you begin to leap forward to the building of the temple, you will find that every precious stone and every precious metal that had significance and meaning because the spiritual or the natural mirrors the spiritual. If you begin to study the significance of these precious metals and the stones. There, there was divine order to its assignment uh, in the tabernacle. Tell your neighbor because the natural mirrors the spiritual. And if you study scripture, you'll find that God uses these things even to describe himself and his kingdom. He uses jewels and he uses gold and he uses silver and he uses fine raiment to describe his glory. They, they were physical types of spiritual things. You can read, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The media will have it behind me. The Song of Solomon, chapter number 5, verses 10 through 15 says this. My beloved is white and ruddy. This is a poetic prophecy almost, if you will, of Jesus. And he says, my beloved is white and ruddy. Now, before you run, don't run out of here saying, I knew Jesus was white. That's not what the scripture means. 
Oh, Lord, I'm, I crossed somebody's theology. I'm sorry if you thought Jesus was Caucasian. He was, in fact, Middle Eastern. But, but, but read with me. This is, this is poetic description. And he says, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. And his locks are bushy and black as a raven. And his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. And his lips are like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Now let me give you a little side note here. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a very intimate book in the Bible. And, and young men, if you're looking for ways to, to speak to a young lady, don't go to the book of Solomon. Because it says crazy stuff like your, your neck is as an ivory tower. I mean, you're, she'll look at you like you're crazy. His hands, listen to, listen to the spiritual significance here. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel, which is a stone. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. And his legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. And his countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Now we know that God doesn't literally have legs of marble or hands that are literally gold rings. And so when you look at the construction of the tabernacle, you begin to understand that we are not to literally build our church buildings with badger skins or fine raiment or our altars out of bronze. But these things are Old Testament types of New Testament truths. Are you with me? I don't have time to dig into deeply into all of this tonight. I'm just building some context. If you study the ephod, which was uh, the priestly garment, uh, uh, you will find that there is also uh, a principle like this here in the scriptures. The Bible says in the book of Exodus chapter 39, verses 2 through 7, and he made the ephod of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet and fine twined linen. And they did beat the gold into thin plates and cut it into wires to work it in the blue and in the purple and in the scarlet and in the fine linen with cunning work. They made shoulder pieces for it to couple it together by the two edges was it coupled together 
and the curious girdle of his ephod that was upon it was of the same according to the work thereof of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet. And there, there's typology in all of this. The, the colors and the type of fabric and the construction has significance. And the Bible says, And fine twined linen as the Lord commanded Moses. Listen. And they wrought onyx stones. It wasn't just the gold, but also the precious stones uh, enclosed in ouches of gold. Graven as signets are graven with the names of the children of Israel. And he put them on the shoulders of the ephod that they should be stones for a memorial to the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. It is important to understand tonight that the priest was not wearing bling. It was built with gold and precious stones. Matter of fact, it looked better than Michael Jackson's outfit in 1983 at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium. But it was not worn for the purpose of fashion or decoration. It had literal religious and ceremonial significance to it. It was not worn as jewelry but it was spiritual illustration. For example, royalty was represented by the color purple and deity by the colors of gold and so on and so forth. Another point about the use uh, of rings in scripture that I want to cover tonight is that you will really only find three places in scripture dealing with the wearing of a ring. And I believe it is theologically important tonight to establish the biblical record of this. In the book of Genesis chapter 41 and verse 41 it says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Now this verse is key because in the context of the scripture, there is a transfer of authority that is happening between Pharaoh and Joseph. He is being handed the keys, if you will, to the kingdom of Egypt. He was given the responsibility of being the comptroller, if you will, of the riches and a steward over the goods of Egypt. It was he who had deciphered the dream about the seven years of lean and the seven years of plenty. And now God had raised him up in oversight of the seven years of plenty. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to the country of Egypt. Pastor Hammond accompanied me, and one of the things that we were able to do is we stood on the embankment of the area that would have been literally where Joseph and Egypt stored all of the seven years of plenty and the, the gates and the, the, the ramps that the wagons would have been pulled up and down as they loaded supplies and just off in the distance 
since the hills where Joseph's quote-unquote office would have been that overlooked the square miles that they used. This was a transfer of authority to Joseph that was happening. And the Bible says in verse 42, and Pharaoh took off his ring from his finger. Wait a second. Oh, I got it wrong. He took off the ring from his hand. That's significant that the ring was not on the finger. Because when you begin to study this, first of all, you can look it up etymologically. That word uh, hand there is the original word Y-A-W-D, yaud, which means the hand, not the finger, as in the hand of fellowship or the right hand of authority. The same base of the word used when it says God formed man. That word formed is the word yetzar, which means to form using your hands. He put the ring on his hand. This is significant because if you study uh, history and scripture together, you will find that this was not a piece of jewelry, but the ring was what was known as a signet ring. It was a tool used by kings, and this signet ring represented authority. It was like having the master key to something. And this signet ring was usually much larger than uh, a regular ring. It, it could not be put on the finger. Uh, it was either worn uh, around the hand or oftentimes it would be worn strapped around the neck uh, or even hung by a chain from the hand. And this ring had on it a signet. Uh, the signet was a uh, like a coat of arms or a logo, if you will, that represented that particular king. And so the signet was, was, was a key. If you had the signet, it was, it was authorization of authority. As a matter of fact, if a king wanted to send correspondence, uh, they didn't have email, they didn't have text messaging, they didn't have uh, telephones, and so they had to use a scribe and they would write letters. And the way, uh, when that letter was delivered, the way that you knew that it wasn't spam, or fake news is that king when he finished with the letter they would take melted wax and they fold, fold the letter up uh, and they would drop the melted wax over the closing of the letter uh, and while the wax was still soft and melted they would take that insignet ring and they would imprint the logo into the wax and when it dried you would see the official seal of the king and if you received a letter you would know if it had been tampered with uh, if the seal was broken and so that 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 symbol represented authority and so when we read about this ring being put on the hand of Joseph it is a signet ring and so uh, if you had that ring you could get access into any room that you needed to get room into you could access the wealth and the supplies of the king and so you can see though how some people would read this scripture and uh, would still misappropriate uh, it to try and explain or justify certain things. That's why when you study scripture, context is imperative. Also, when the king of Persia gives the ring of his authority to Mordecai, in that story, Mordecai does not accept 
the ring. He doesn't want to receive that authority from the king of Persia. And then the third place you will find it prominently in scripture is the story of the prodigal son. The Bible says that the father kills the fatted calf and he puts the best robes upon him and he puts his ring upon his hand. And all of these have spiritual implication because the natural always mirrors the spiritual. So the example of these men receiving a ring upon the hand doesn't constitute a biblical principle of wearing rings as jewelry. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to follow that line of thinking and apply it with that logic, you would have to conclude that it did not even come from Israel, but the practice came from Egypt. It wasn't Moses that gave Joseph the ring. It was Pharaoh. It is still an Egyptian culture, which does not make it a biblical custom, but rather the argument could be made that it was a worldly custom. Now let's take a look at what God does for Israel just before they go into the promised land. He's telling them that there are going to be some things that they're going to have a tendency to want to participate in. Remember, he is taking them out of a land and a culture of bondage. They don't know what it's like to have their own land and their own place. And there are people where God is taking them that are polytheistic. They serve many gods. And they have all sorts of rituals and customs and things that are ungodly. So before he sends his people into the promised land, he says there are some things that you are going to see when you get there that are displeasing to me. He already knew that they were going to have a propensity to gravitate to some of those things because of the culture that they came out of. And God wanted them to remember, uh, thou shalt have no other gods uh, before me. I don't want you worshiping like they worship. I don't want you looking like they look. I don't want you practicing their cultures. I don't want you involved in their tradition. I'm giving you the land, but you're not just going to kick out the giants. You've got to kick out the culture of the giants in the land that I'm taking you to. God's people had a proclivity of falling back in to idolatry and idolatrous practices. And so God sets the stage before he ever takes them in and tells them when you get there, I want you to not just drive out the giants, but don't allow their culture to influence you. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse number 9 says, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, listen, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through 
the fire. What, what did that mean? Human sacrifice of babies was a prevalent form of worship. Go study uh, the god Molech. They would literally take their infant children and they would uh, offer them into the fire, the belly of Molech that was full of fire as a sacrifice. And, and can you believe it that God would even have to say this uh, uh, to these people? Uh, but it gives us a picture of the proclivity of humanity. And you would think that there were some things you wouldn't even have to preach. You would think there were some things you might not even have to say. Maybe explain it one time. Uh, I found out as a pastor you can't just explain stuff one time because people about three months, sometimes three weeks uh, or three days forget everything you said. They forget every scripture they read uh, and here they go following after the traditions. Uh, oh, come on somebody. Don't get quiet on me now. Uh, and so every time you turn around, uh, God is reminding them, uh, don't do it like they do it. Uh, don't be like the world uh, don't serve their gods uh, don't practice uh, their traditions he said or that useth divination or an observer of times they were involved in astrology I don't have time to break every one of these down and, or an enchanter or a witch don't get involved in anything concerning these things or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits. Somebody who acts as a medium between us and the afterlife or a wizard or a necromancer. I don't have time to get into that. Somebody who deals with things that are already dead. Necro uh, means dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out uh, before thee. God said, I'm sending you into a land. This is what they're doing. When you get there, don't have anything to do uh, with their rituals or their culture, uh, but let's drive out the culture uh, that they established. Did you realize that when God delivers you uh, into the land of promise uh, and he brings you out of Egypt, uh, sometimes you got to work a little while uh, driving out the old cultures uh, of Satan that he established in your life. Uh, sometimes it takes a while uh, to drive out the worldly cultures that have been put into your mind and your spirit uh, by the world you grew up in, uh, by the family you were raised in sometimes, uh, by other influences. Uh, but if you're going to have everything that God has for you, uh, you got to have a made-up mind. Uh, I'm going to drive out uh, the worldliness uh, from the promises uh, that God has given me. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. Man, God wants me to be perfect. <laughs> you have to read this in the context of the scripture. What God was saying is I'm not budging one inch from my standard. What he was saying is I'm not compromising one jot or tittle of my word or my principle. There's not going to be any compromise. We're not going to leave room for one thing. We're not going to leave room for one particle of that culture or compromise. For these nations 
which thou shalt possess, hearkened unto the observers of time and unto the diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. In other words, you do not have permission to do so. Anybody who thinks that a relationship with God is without expectations is not serving the true and living God. Come on, somebody. I'm just going to love God the way I love him. I'm just going to serve God. You're not serving the same God that I serve. And so, when you begin to study, especially the things that are listed here, you will find that most of the things he is talking about are accomplished with jewelry involved. Especially charming and observing time, astrology and, and divining. Jewelry and gems and all of those things in witchcraft. Uh, they're all, uh, jewelry and gems are a major part of these types of rituals. I, I have been there. I've seen it. Uh, when I was growing up in my small hometown, there used to be a little shop near the downtown that was owned by a witch. And she sold and, and facilitated seances and, and supplies for witchcraft. And I remember one time I was a, a young teenager, 17, 18 years old, and and, and I was radical. I, I went to a big public high school, and when I got the Holy Ghost, they didn't recognize me from the eighth grade to the ninth grade. I walked in there. I looked different. I sounded different, and I had a big old black Thompson chain Bible that I carried with me through the halls of my school. Come on, y'all ain't saying nothing. I did. Ask anybody. I carried that big old Bible right through the hall of my school. The hell, what is he doing? Who is he? And I, I decided one day I used to ride the bus, and the main bus station was right down two blocks from that witch's shop. And I don't know what got into me one day. I said, I'm going to walk up in that thing just to see her reaction. And I walked up in that thing with my Bible under my hand, just walking around the store looking at stuff. Woo! It was like a cat with hair and a hair stamp. <laughs> but almost the entirety of the store was centered around jewelry. Jewelry was at the centerpiece of witchcraft and sorcery and all of those things. Let me read you a, 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 some excerpts from a secular article about gemstones. This is a secular article. Here's what it says. Long before gems were prized for their monetary value, they were worn for magical purposes. The ancients believed that gems could heal, protect, inspire fertility, indicate the outcome of battles, and stimulate crop growth. You can probably think of someone who carries that uh, lucky rabbit's foot. Anybody know people who carry... Uh, lucky things, a superstition, or uh, that's kind of weird, a rabbit's foot. Or they wear something as a way to uh, invoke the presence of a deceased loved one, or uh, maybe they're not too deep into witchcraft, but all of their, these ideologies have their roots 
and deep spiritualism. The article goes on to say that today a growing number of witches and other metaphysicians are rediscovering the magic inherent in stones. Now you've got to get rid of your old idea of a witch because when I say witch, you think of a long pointy nose with warts, green skin, and a black cone hat, but the witches don't look like that. Witches got lots of money most of the time. Some of them got PhDs. You probably work with several of them at your job and didn't even know they were, come on somebody. They live on your block down the street. They operate at the local 7-Eleven that you go to. Uh-huh. The writer goes on to say that they realize that crystals and gemstones can be an important tool for healing, for spell working, for divination, for shamanic journeying, for meditation and dowsing. Let me hit this for just a moment because uh, there's another element of this that, that, that I want to talk about for just a moment and that is pharmaceutical drugs. While I am not preaching against medicine to help you, I preach with a grave level of caution because there are lines that you can cross over in the realm of pharmaceuticals that are rooted in witchcraft and control and manipulation. Come on, somebody. Take a trip to the state hospital uh, and you'll find out exactly uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, did you know that the word pharmaceutical uh, comes from the word pharmakai and it's the same place that we get the word witchcraft from? The witch doctor. You better be careful before you just start popping pills or take the word of a psychiatrist over God's word. When you start seeking counseling from psychiatrists uh, instead of the wonderful counselor uh, or the spiritual leadership that God has come on, you better be careful uh, because there is a real uh, and current world uh, of witchcraft uh, and manipulation uh, that has its roots. Uh, and you think it's just because you can pick it up at Walgreens legally uh, that it's okay. Uh, that it, You better not worry about him that's able to destroy the body but him that's able to destroy the soul pharmaceutical drug addiction is almost a greater epidemic uh, than street drugs is nowadays they realize that crystals and gemstones can be important tools for healing Spell working, divination, shamanic journeying, meditation and dowsing. The, the article goes on to say that gemstones are believed to have their own distinct personalities. According to Nancy Schiffer, the author of The Power of Jewelry, our ancestors believed that gemstones were capable of human feelings and passions so that they could express jealousy and shock. Each stone has its own unique properties and energies that can be tapped for magical purposes. As a general rule, clear stones are best for working with mental and spiritual issues. I know some people need some clear stones. Hallelujah. Translucent or cloudy stones 
such as pearls or moonstones can aid emotional situations and opaque stones have an affinity with physical matters. Stones of all kinds may be used alone or in combination with other ingredients in spell working. In the article, Magical Uses for Gemstones, it says this, witches utilize gemstones in a myriad of ways and value them not only for their monetary worth, but for their magical possibilities as well. Here are some of their uses as pendulums, as what they call rooms and other divination tools for healing and aligning the body's energy centers, for talismans, for finishes, as ceremony jewelry, as components in spells and rituals, as aids to visualization and meditation, to adorn magical tools and augment their power, to define sacred space and honor its energies as gifts to deities. Some witches believe that dreams about gemstones are significant and be, can be considered messages from the divine because dreams are symbolic and individualistic. Your own interpretation should be given priority. Can I, can I just stop here for a moment and talk about dreams? Some of us, God has delivered us out of superstition. And sometimes I find people that bring that superstition into their walk with God. And if you're not careful, every time you have a dream, you'll be trying to spiritualize its meanings and what it said. And, and, and obviously, there are divine dreams from God. But God is not the author of confusion, and he's not the author of fear. And so we have to break these tendencies of, of sometimes spiritualizing things that the only reason you had the dream is you ate too much Wendy's after 10 o'clock. And your mind was racing about schoolwork and, and, and the yard work that you had to do and, and what somebody said yesterday. And so before you know it, your aunt's cousin's uncle's dog had a frog that was named Ted that was flipping pancakes in the backyard in a pair of Bermuda trunks, and there was a fish flying through the sky. And what does that mean, God? I ain't lying. The, the, let me get back to teaching. The article goes on to say that Dreams of diamonds, meaning different things in different cultures. In Europe and the United States, diamonds represent devotion or faithfulness in love. In the Middle East, Persia, and Egypt, they signify good luck. In India, they symbolize victory, success, and zeal. You need to go and read the book, Blood Diamonds. And read about all of the atrocities associated with harvesting diamonds and the diamond industry. And yet as a society, we are enamored with the beauty of diamonds. Did you know that some 80% or 90% of those diamonds harvested, go do your research, go through a ritualistic process where spiritual voodoo chants are made that when the diamond reaches its intended wearer, that the voodoo chant will have influence 
on those people. Go read about it. And as a society, we're enamored with these things. So much so that all of you could complete this sentence. That a girl's best friend are... No, it ain't. It's Jesus. <laughs> the article goes on to say that as you work with gemstones, you'll undoubtedly discover other uses for them according to your particular intentions and personal style. Trust your intuition and allow the stones themselves to speak to you. They may suggest some unique applications. In an article called Spellworking with Gemstones, the writer said before using gemstones in spells or rituals, it is a good idea to wash them to remove any unwanted vibrations and to prepare them to receive your intentions. Cleanse them with running water and mild soap and visualize white light permeating the stones and clearing them. You can combine several stones in a spell to customize it. Let's say, for instance, that you are fashioning a talisman and you want it to attract wealth. You might include a venturing or tiger eye, stones that are typically associated with abundance. But if the person for whom the talisman is being made tends to have trouble holding on to money, you could add a piece of hematite to stabilize finances. Refer to the list of correspondences further on this chapter to determine which gems are the most appropriate for your purposes. This is modern day stuff, but you can trace all of its roots to ancient spiritualism. And whether you want to admit it or turn a blind eye to it, it is very much a part uh, of today's society. Even though society tries to denounce the relevance of God's principles in today's world. You see, the part of the problem is we are in the western part of the world. And particularly in the United States, we have such a narrow uh, understanding of some of these ancient ideologies. But I've traveled around the world uh, and I have seen firsthand with my own eyes uh, the active, current, modern day application of all of these things in a spiritual context. Bishop Alviar was just with us Sunday. I was with him in Campinas, Brazil, and we went to the cemetery where the demonic uh, worshipers and the, the uh, high priests of the satanic church operate and I stood there and watched uh, as a high priestess uh, of the satanic church stood next to the headstone uh, of an ancient uh, satanic priest uh, and with her black robe and black hood this it wasn't Hollywood I was there she stood in front of a woman who was as normal looking as anybody else uh, and she had piles of stone and gems and jewelry in her hand as she began a seance and to cast a spell on the young lady's boyfriend because she thought he was looking at other girls and she was putting a spell on him. I've stood by the altars of satanic worshipers and witnessed the significance of all of this pagan rituals and worship. 
Gems don't necessarily, here's the article, goes on to say that gems don't necessarily mean the same thing in every culture. Therefore, when doing magic, it could be important to consider the nationality or heritage of the person for whom you are working a spell. The per person's birth date might also be relevant. It is usually best to use stones that support their astrological energies. I don't know why I feel like s stopping here again for a moment, but there, there are too many people who are naive in God's kingdom that just because it's not happening on your front step, uh, you think it doesn't exist in today's society. But I'm telling you, it is more real and more prevalent uh, than you can imagine. Just go to Barnes & Noble and start walking down the aisles uh, right here in Fort Myers uh, and start looking at how many books uh, are there to instruct people uh, who are now interested in witchcraft uh, and sorcery. Just take a walk uh, down the children's aisle uh, of the bookstore uh, showing them how to cast spells and find jewels uh, and find things that would help. Just take a walk Brother Stewart uh, down to Bourbon Street in, uh, in Louisiana and you will see one after the other after the other witch houses uh, and satanic houses of worship. Uh, church, you better wake up and realize uh, that this culture uh, of spiritualism uh, is alive uh, and it is well uh, today. Uh, the culture of Egypt, uh, the culture of the world uh, is still uh, significant uh, in the world we live in today. The origin of jewelry was never cosmetic. It was spiritual. And it always attached to pagan rituals and worship. The prominent theme of Egypt was their jewelry and what it meant to them. If you go to Egypt today, you will see it on display everywhere. Article goes on to say that once you've chosen a stone to use in your spell, communicate your intentions to it. Go get me a donut. <laughs> Krispy Kreme. The article said, <laughs> the article says you could do this by holding the stone to your third eye. Many Eastern religions believe in what they call the third eye. It is the eye of consciousness of the inner man. And that once you awake spiritually the inner man, that there is a third eye that allows you to see what is imperceptible to the natural eye. It is often depicted as an eye that is placed in the middle of the forehead. You can see it on the $1 bill of the U.S. dollar at the top of the pyramid, the all-seeing eye. It says that you can hold the stone to your third eye and project into it an image of what you want it to do or hold the gem to your lips and whisper your objective to it. If you wish to use gemstones to mark the four directions that define sacred space, place an air stone such as an aquamarine in the east. Choose a fire stone or perhaps a carnelium or ruby for the south. In the west, put a water stone such as a pearl or a moonstone. And in the north, set an onyx, turquoise, or other earth stone. Witches often use gemstones to augment healing 
And although this is an art that requires skill and practice to perfect, the properties of some stones are widely accepted and can be safely utilized as subtle healing aids, even by novice witches. The gentle vibration of those of rose quartz can calm stress. Amethysts have been used since ancient times to induce sleep. Remember, however, that gemstones are not a substitute for professional medical care. Duh. Now, gemstones themselves are not evil. If the stones themselves were evil, God would not have used them repeatedly in describing his own glory or used them repeatedly in the tabernacle or the ephod. But the world has taken them since the ancient times, follow me here, and turned them into gods and used them for witchcraft. There is no scriptural precedence, hermeneutically, that God's people ever fashioned for themselves jewelry to be worn on their body. You won't find it from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, the law of first mention or any other hermeneutical law. You will never find precedent anywhere in scripture that would justify or indicate that God's people fashioned jewelry to wear on their body. Jewelry was always the result of their involvement with another culture and their abominations of that other culture that God hated. And the jewelry always caused problems between them and God. And it became a stumbling block to them when they made unions with heathen nations. Just go study Jacob and the Canaanites. Go study more Israel and Egypt in the time before their captivity. Listen to what God says. Are you with me tonight? Listen to what God says in the book of Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 16. Listen, here's what he says. But they that escape of them shall escape. What's he talking about? God is rendering judgment on his people and the nation because of their idolatry. He has become absolutely fed up with them embracing the cultural ideologies of these idolatrous nations. And so here the prophet says, but they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, every one for his iniquity. It's the judgment of God on the people. And all hands shall be feeble and all knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror shall cover them and shame shall be upon all faces and baldness upon all their heads. Now just because you're bald doesn't mean the judgment of God is on you. Listen, they shall cast their silver in the streets. God's addressing now their use of the, the fine metals and jewels in pagan practices. He said they're going to cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be removed and their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Listen to verse 20. As for the beauty of his ornament, 
He said it in majesty. This is a direct reference to the original context of which jewels and fine uh, metals should have been. They were originally established uh, to declare uh, the kingship of our God, to declare the majesty of our God, and to reflect uh, the glory of God. And so he says, as for the beauty of his ornament, uh, he set it uh, in majesty, but they made the images of their abominations uh, and of their detestable things therein. They took what was meant to reflect my glory and turned it into abominable idolatry. Therefore have I set it far from them. Oftentimes jewelry is a display of wealth or financial status. And so for a few moments I want to talk about something that I believe has connectivity here tonight, and that is the hip-hop culture. There are three things that have become the thematic principles of hip-hop culture today. Number one is there has never been a musical genre ever that has had the cultural effect on humanity that hip-hop music has. Hip-hop music has crossed cultures like no other music form has ever done before. When you got cowboys trying to figure out how to put rap songs on their albums, hello? And there's a reason for this. There is a power associated with hip-hop culture and the hip-hop music today. It is more powerful and more dominant and more overtly satanic than any other music that we've ever seen before. Back in the 80s, we used to be talking about heavy metal bands that were backmasking their music and hiding messages. And if you played it backwards, you could find messages about Satan and, and their artwork. But if you, if you looked at it at a certain angle and, 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 and 3D glasses, you could, you could find messages and subliminal things. But hip-hop music today isn't hiding anything. It is overt Satanism uh, put right in front uh, of your face. Come on, somebody. Uh, there's no hiding it. Uh, there's, no there's no trying to make it cute uh, or innocuous. Uh, it is right out uh, in front. It is flagrantly uh, in front of the eyes of God. It has become the main medium uh, by which the, the, the powers of hell uh, have communicated the culture of Satan's kingdom. From Snoop Dogg's recounting of how he sold his soul to the devil in his songs. To Beyonce and the demon Sasha that she opens up and allows to possess her when she performs. Don't take my word for it. She tells us about it herself. To her satanic rituals on an NFL football, in an NFL football stadium at halftime, which is the most viewed event in the entire world. 
at the moment that has the world's attention like nothing else. It is hip-hop and Satanism. Satan said, give me the most powerful tool of influence that you can find for me to deliver my message to the masses. Open satanic rituals as tens of thousands cheer and celebrate in stadiums and hundreds of thousands and millions around the world groove to at halftime. To little Nas X and the putrefying expressions of Satanism. Open, no hiding it. His music videos with depictions of hell and Satan and him doing sexual acts to Satan. The putrefying blend of Satanism and lesbianism and homosexuality. It's in the culture. And he makes no bones about it. He performs for free at elementary and middle schools and high schools. Go look it up. He shows up and does pop-up concerts for free at the schools for all the little kids dressed in his tights and his pink boots. And when they interview him, he doesn't hold back. He says, I am doing my best to reach the kids with my message and my culture. Sex, money, and power are at the center of the hip-hop culture. And jewelry and bling are one of the most defining characteristics of the hip-hop culture. Are you with me tonight? Chains, diamond earrings, rocks on the finger, grills on the teeth, gluing stuff to your teeth. So infatuated with, you think there's a spiritual connection here? Satan trying to mimic the glory of God on his biggest platform and his greatest. It is no question that jewelry finds its way into the center of the hip-hop culture. What's your name? No wonder they came out with mumble rap. Influence of kids, influencing a world. Used to ask a little kid, what do you want for Christmas? A Red Ryder BB gun and a Red Flyer wagon. Ask a kid now what you want for I want a Bentley on 22s and some bling. You're part of the modern day abominations of this world. And jewelry has always been a part of Egyptian culture. Worldly culture and idolatry. And when you trace it back, even in today's society, that's where it plays its most important role. And so jewelry has no place in the life of a Christian.
You will find that jewelry was always a defining characteristic of the harlot in Scripture, along with cosmetics. Over and over again in Scripture, people trust in their gold. It represents idolatry. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. I'm hurrying tonight. A day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. <clears throat> and I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Do you think he's talking about gold bullion in bricks? He's talking about jewelry because jewelry was absolutely associated with idolatry. And their wearing of jewelry was a direct communication that they had given themselves over to the worship of idols. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all of them that dwell in the land. God was very clear about his displeasure of their ornamentation, their tie to the culture that he brought them out of. Listen what he says in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16 through 26. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, means full of pride, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. These are not people in the world. He said, these are the daughters of Zion. Zion is a type of the church. And he's frustrated because this is what's happening in the church. Therefore, verse 17, the Lord will smite with the scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their, thinking, of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls. What are All these terms are types of jewelry. Their calls and their round tires like the moon, describing a type of jewelry. The chains and the bracelets and the mufflers. I don't know what kind of jewelry that is, but don't wear it. The bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings and the rings. Verse 21. Can I stop and preach a little bit more about rings? When you study their significance in ancient history, Rings, the circle was a type uh, to ancient tribes of eternity. It has no beginning and it has no end. And there was belief in pagan religions that a ring could be used to ward off evil spirits. And the ancients believed that evil spirits 
could enter the human body through orifices or openings in the human body. They could get in anywhere. There's an opening. And so they began the practice of putting rings next to openings of the body. That's where the, the, the ancient practice began of ear rings. It was putting the ring by the opening of the ear. But it didn't just stop with that opening. They put rings by all of the openings of the body. Here and here and everywhere. And we used to say, oh, that just exists in these little tribes all over the... Pull up a picture today of an ancient voodoo witch doctor, any of those people wearing all that stuff, and then just go to Walmart and tell me you can't find at least 10 of them that look just like that at Walmart. There is a spiritual connection to pagan idolatry concerning jewelry. He says, the rings. And then in verse 22, the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins and the glasses. He's not talking about eyeglasses. I don't have time to get into the etymology of every one of these terms. And the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girdling of sackcloth. And burning instead of beauty. God was letting them know you will never duplicate my glory. You will never find anything made by the creator that has the glory of the creator. You will never find something that was created by me that is equal to me or equal to my glory. Goes on to say, thy men shall fall by the sword and thy mighty in war. Her gates shall lament and mourn and she bring desolate shall sit upon the ground. God is expressing his absolute abhorrence of their involvement with idolatrous culture and uh, specifically with the wearing of jewelry representing their attachment to that culture. Most men struggle less than women concerning jewelry. Because it is tied closely to vanity. And women tend to struggle with insecurity more than most men. Ladies, the operative word is most. <laughs> and so jewelry becomes a way to try and enhance one's beauty. One question people ask is, well, if God created everything, even the precious stone, how could it be wrong to wear them? God also created trees, but you don't see people wearing trees. Well, actually, I saw two people in the Bible that tried to wear trees in the book of Genesis. And the moment God saw him, he said, that ain't going to work. There's only one way to get covered, and I got to make the covering for you. Can I add to that tonight? Just because God made it doesn't mean we smoke it. Or eat it. <laughs> Lord. 
We serve the most high. Number two, the wearing of jewelry was a culture of the world. It wasn't instituted by God. Number three, the wearing or displaying of jewels was the beauty of Lucifer. It's where Lucifer got mixed up. He was created to reflect the glory and the light of God. He decided he wanted to reflect his own glory. And it became a distortion of him reflecting God's glory and instead attracting attention to himself and glorifying himself. It attracts attention. Listen to what God says concerning Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. The, the word used here is king of Tyrus. But as you study the scripture, you'll realize he is talking about Satan here. Verse 12, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. He's talk, talking about Satan. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, and the diamond the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Our beauty does not come from precious stones or gold or silver. Our beauty comes from the glory of God in our lives. And you cannot improve on perfection. When we get the Holy Ghost, there should be a difference in our desire. We are not after what the world defines as beautiful and attractive, but our beauty comes from the Holy Ghost. It is the beauty of holiness. I'm trying to hurry. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 25 says, the graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein. That's powerful verbiage. He said, I want you to destroy the idols that you worshiped before I got you. And when you do, don't be tempted to hold on to the gold and the silver and all of the precious stones 
burn it up and get rid of it out of your life. Can I just stop and preach? When God gives you the Holy Ghost and you get a revelation of holiness, don't hang on to worldly things and put them in a drawer for a rainy day. Come on, somebody. You are giving place to the enemy in your life. And if there comes a moment of weakness or temptation, you make provision for a stumbling block in your life. When God delivers you, get it out of your house. If you get it out of your heart, get it out of your home. Get it out of your drawers. Get it out of, come on. Get the worldly raiments, uh, get the worldly clothes, uh, get the cosmetic, get the jewelry, uh, sell it, give it away, uh, but get it out of your house. Come on, I wish somebody would get excited over the word of the Lord tonight. I know it's Tuesday uh, and you want me to just shout you happy, uh, but somebody ought to shout uh, over the truth of God's word tonight uh, because on Monday uh, when there's no organ playing uh, and on Thursday uh, when there's no praise singer singing uh, and on Saturday morning uh, when your pastor's not up here preaching uh, and the enemy is tempting you uh, and he's lying to you, uh, it's going to be the word of God that you stand on and defeat the tempter of your soul. It's going to be the word of God that you hold on to when you walk with God. He said, thou shalt not desire the silver of the gold that is on these gods that you burn with fire. Don't take it unto thee. Listen, why? Lest thou be snared therein. Don't hold on to it and be tempted to go back to the idolatry that I delivered you from. Here's what God said in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. He said, notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. Listen, and they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. He said they hardened themselves. When I tried to give them my word, they rejected it. They turned their head at the word that I was trying to give them. And because of it, they were deceived. And they started going after the heathen culture. And they started doing the very things that I warned them about. That word vain in the American Heritage Dictionary means showing undue preoccupation with one's appearance. When we become so preoccupied with our appearance that we begin to adopt the culture of the world to enhance our appearance. That is vanity. You see, when you, are, when you are living a life of prayer, you are in constant exposure to the glory of God. And it's like Moses, when he was on the mountain with God, he had glory that emanated from his face. 
And when you, when you spend time in the presence of God, his glory is all over your life. Conversely, when you stop praying in the Holy Ghost and you're not walking with God, the glory of his presence wanes from you. And if you're not careful, you wonder why you feel empty and naked and ashamed. And so you try to replace the glory of God through vanity. You become concerned. And so you're trying to look for authenticity and you're trying to look for affirmation from the world, from the gods of this world uh, and society uh, and you become more worried about being accepted uh, by the culture you live in uh, than the God that you serve uh, and you elevate their ideas uh, above God's ideas uh, come on somebody uh, if you've got to walk with God uh, you need to spend time in the Holy Ghost uh, if you'll pray in the Holy Ghost uh, every day uh, you'll begin to see that the glory of God uh, is all over your life uh, and you'll become less consumed uh, with matching an identity uh, that the world says is beautiful. Uh, and you'll begin to walk in the beauty uh, of holiness. Uh, you'll become less worried uh, about what fashion magazine uh, and your friends at, at your job uh, and your neighbors look like uh, compared to you. Uh, and you'll begin to understand uh, that you are a reflection of God's glory uh, in this world. Uh, and that anything uh, the world world has uh, is a cheap imitation uh, of God's glory that's on your life. Uh, come on, I'm challenging uh, some young men uh, and some young women. Uh, get on your face uh, and pray. Uh, get in your closet uh, and pray uh, until the glory uh, of God comes on you. Uh, when the glory of God comes on you, uh, nothing in this world uh, can compare to it. Uh, it's like putting Dagon uh, next to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it has to fall in the ground uh, broken and cheap uh, in the presence uh, and the glory uh, of God. Uh, you see, that's what holiness... Uh, can I just preach for a moment uh, on this last night of the series? Uh, that's what real holiness uh, is all about. Uh, it's being restored uh, back to that place with God uh, that he always intended for you to have. Uh, it's him bringing you uh, out of Egypt uh, it's him delivering you out of the world. You no longer have to wear fake. You no longer have to look fake. You no longer have to copy the man-made ideology. But my glory is going to be upon you. My power is going to be upon you. And it's going to emanate to the whole world through my people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The world will try to tell you, well, that was just Old Testament. I'm glad the apostles had an Old Testament to preach from. And I'll give you a New Testament scripture since you asked. First Timothy, which was a letter written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul who was perhaps the most brilliant theologian concerning the Old Testament. Probably, arguably, the writer of the book of Hebrews. My favorite book in the Bible, probably the, some of the greatest revelation concerning the Old Testament. And here's what Paul says in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. 
He says, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Go listen to all the other lessons already taught. With shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broided hair. That's not braided, it's broided. Or gold. Or pearls. Or costly array. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, New Testament says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Don't put on the world's apparel. Don't put on the jewelry and the stuff that the fashion world says is going to make you look good. You don't need any of that. Verse 4, he says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit which is in the sight of God. God, which is in the sight of God. That's the only one I'm worried about pleasing. I don't care what the world says. I'm not trying to make you happy. What I care about is what do I look like in the sight of God. Running around pleasing the world is an endless road that'll leave you empty. You'll never be good enough. It'll never be enough. It'll always be changing. You'll always be chasing this person, that person, this group or that. But in the sight of God beauty is not corruptible it's not a fad that passes away it's not something that's subject to the opinions of the world it is in corruptible beauty Whoa. it is in the sight of God of great price great price God was teaching them all the way back at the foundation of the nation of Israel when they built the calf that the beauty is on the inside. He made them grind up the gold of that calf and put it in water and drink it so that the gold was on the inside. He wanted them to know you can't put anything on the outside of your body that will match the glory of my spirit on the inside of your body. That's what it means to have the inside bling bling. When Vashti walked into the king's palace, she was different than all the other women. They prepared for weeks and days articulate painting, articulate clothing, articulate structures. But Vashti was a child of God. And when she walked in there, she was pure and she was clean. She wasn't painted or decorated with jewelry, but her beauty was stunning and it commanded the attention of the king they could not compare with the glory of God that was in her life and when she walked in pure and clean she had favor with 
God and favor with men. Can I preach to some young ladies? If you really want power in your life, it comes by consecration to God. If you'll consecrate yourself to God, you'll never have to hold your head down in the midst of this world. If you'll be consecrated to God, you'll never have to hang your head in shame around other people because when you walk in any room full of the Holy Ghost and holiness in your life, their beauty will not and cannot compare. Don't let the devil lie to you. Don't let the world lie to you. I'm trying to hurry. Music come. I'm, I'm, I got one more thing to talk about and I'm done tonight. Before we close tonight, I want to talk about one more type of jewelry that seems to be commonplace in the church today. And that is wedding rings. I want to begin by saying that wedding rings are not a biblical principle or a biblical practice of marriage ritual. You won't find it anywhere in the word of God. Where did it start? There's no way for me to cover in depth tonight everything, but I'm going to take a few moments establish some context for you tonight. In one article, now this is a secular history article. This was not even written from a Christian perspective. It is simply his, his, historical. The article says this finger rings made of bronze, gold, and silver from the period of 2500 to 1500 B.C., have been found in the Indus Valley in India, in Egypt. Coincidence? I think not. Rings from 1600 BC served as a symbol of status and were exchanged as a pledge or seal of faith. Notice again, these practices are originating from hedonistic and polytheistic nations and cultures that are idolatrous, not from God's people. The signet ring grew from the custom of wearing a cylindrical ring suspended from the arm or the hand. It was widely adopted as a seal of authority. Numerous rings were worn by Egyptian women, sometimes as many as three on a finger. In Greece, gold bands were worn and later were engraved with cameos. Talisman rings endowed with many charms and powers were also worn. Again, this is just secular history right here. In the middle and latter part of the Roman civilization, I want you to think about this because this is where the Roman Catholic Church came from. Part of the Roman civilization, the type of ring worn was governed by law. Rings started to play a part uh, in identification in the caste system of Roman culture. Iron rings were worn by the mass of people. Gold was reserved for those of civil or military rank. And later the gold ring was permitted for freeborn citizens. 
Silver were for free men and iron for slaves. It was used as identity for their casting system. The betrothal ring used by Egyptians, Greeks, and Roman were adopted by early Christians in the second century and later evolved into the wedding ring. The engagement ring set with a precious gem came into existence in the Middle Ages. Diamonds attained popularity in the 15th century and became customary by 1800. From the Middle Ages, rings have figured into the coronation of kings and the consecration of bishops as a symbol of authority or mystical significance. Since that time, a gold seal known as a fisherman's ring in Taglio of St. Peter in a fishing boat has been given to each pope and is destroyed when he dies. Very tight attachment to the Catholic Church. By the 16th century, the extravagant use of rings had reached its height. That time, too, the gold wedding band became popular. As you can see, the evolution of wedding rings has been extensive and always carries with it a distinction of mystical significance. That's from a secular article. This was never a practice or custom of God's people. They never had a use for jewelry, and it was always referred to as an abominable thing to God that represented idolatry and vanity. If you study it, wedding rings, you can go look it up on YouTube, Catholic wedding ring ceremony. You will find that it is even, first of all, let me give you a little more context for those of you who aren't familiar with church history. The Catholic church, the word Catholic means universal. The idea of the Romans as they were trying to conquer the world was if we are going to have a cohesive society, then we understand the important role that religion plays in each of these societies that we conquer. And so we've got to develop a religion that is as inclusive as possible. If we can include people's religion into one religion, it'll make them more apt to fall in line with our government system. And so they created the Catholic or the universal church. And they picked pieces and parts out of all of the different society religions to make up the Catholic culture. They took statues from one religion praying to figurines and they took burning incense from other spiritual religions and they took particular ceremonies and beliefs to, to meld it into one universal church. Obviously, one of the centerpieces of the Catholic Church is the strong adherence to the belief of the Trinity. Who knows false doctrine? There's only one God. His name is Jesus. When you read history and it talks about the wedding ring being brought into the Christian church by Rome, they, they call the Catholic Church the Christian Church. It's not, but it's, that's what they refer to it as. It was the Catholic Church that brought the wedding ring because they were they were part rings were part of of uh, pagan religion. They were never a part of Christian religion. They were part of pagan religion, but they're trying to build the universal church. So they borrowed the use of rings from pagan religions, and they mixed it with the idea of the Trinity. This is the first place we find the use 
of wedding rings in Christianity. And it's a tribute to the Trinity because if you watch the ceremony, they will say, you ever wonder why they put the ring on that finger? Because it's part of the Trinity. They'll literally take the ring and go, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. And that's why the ring finger is the ring finger. And so that has no place in a Christian's life. And it certainly has no place in the life of an apostolic who is a one God apostolic with a revelation of the beauty of, I ought to get way more shouts and amens than that in the building. Let's stand, I'm, I'm almost done. and I, I don't have time to, to get into all of it, but you, you can do more studying on the history of, of the ring and, and, and its significance. Uh, in, one, in one place in time, the ring was symbolic of slavery to women. Symbolic of slavery, I don't have time to get into it all. Can I, t can I just tell you, I'm teaching you tonight, wedding rings are not the symbol of your wedding covenant. First of all, let me put it like this. People say, well, I wear this because I don't want guys to hit on me. I wear this because I don't want girls to hit on me. They'll know I'm married and this will solve all our, our problems. Wedding rings solve so much problems that adultery is as low as it's ever been in society today. I mean, it's just doing better, you know, because we wear wedding rings. You know, I'm being facetious. If they work so well, why is adultery such a problem? Adultery means you're married and you stepped out on your spouse because that ring is not the sign of your wedding covenant. It's jewelry. If you want people to know you're, you're married, act married. Oh, I'm preaching way better than you're shouting. You want people to know you're married? Act like a married woman. Act like a married man. And if somebody has the gumption to approach you and hit on you, act like a Holy Ghost-filled married man or a Holy Ghost-filled married young woman and tell them to take a hike. So I'm sorry, there's no data to back that theory up. There is none. Anytime you study covenants in Scripture, God always used a sign for the covenant. When he flooded the earth with water and he promised Noah that he would never do that again, the Bible says that he put a bow in the sky so that every time they saw the rainbow, it was a, it was a symbol of the covenant that God made. Every time you see this, you're going to remember my promise. I'm sorry, LGBTQTYZ, MNFOP group, the rainbow doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God's people. You can't have the rainbow. God gave it to us as a promise. When God wanted to make a covenant with Abraham and his people, he used a blood covenant, the circumcision of the flesh. And when the law was fulfilled, it was no longer a physical circumcision, but the Bible said it was a circumcision made without hands, a circumcision of the heart. 
the cutting away of the flesh. It's a blood covenant. And in the act of marriage, there is a blood covenant. Now I'm going to be as high level with this conversation as I can. But when a man and a woman come together under the auspices of doing it God's way, and they have kept themselves pure for each other, when they come together and consummate the marriage in the marriage bed, it is a blood covenant. And the, the symbol and covenant of their marriage is their intimacy. And every time a husband and wife are together in intimacy, that is the sign of their covenant together. That's why adultery breaks the covenant. It's just jewelry. And it's a pagan custom that testifies of Trinitarianism and all kind of other stuff. And when you have the Holy Ghost and you have a better way, you don't need that jewelry on your hand. This is really good preaching. This is really good preaching. And so, when we understand jewelry and its role in history and the Bible, then we understand when we get the Holy Ghost, we get rid of all the superficial. We no longer need the world's attempt at glory because we have the glory of God at work in our lives. Why don't we stand tonight? I wonder if we could take a few moments. It's only 937. I wonder if we could take five minutes tonight to come to this altar. Come on, we're... we're, we're some of y'all spent more time than this on YouTube in the past couple of days. Why don't we take a few moments and just come to this altar tonight and I wonder if we could take a moment and just solidify some things in our spirit concerning the Word of God tonight. Can we take the Word of God that's been delivered in this house and lift up our hands and our hearts and just begin to pray and say, all right, God, I don't want this to just be in my ears and my mind, but God, I want your word to find its way into my heart tonight. Let your word find its way into my heart tonight. Come on. Come on, don't worry about anybody around you. Don't worry about the clock. Don't worry about... Tonight, God, we're making a, a covenant with you, God. Tonight, we're consecrating ourselves to you. Come on, lift up your voice. So take, so take my heart. Come on, lift your voice. Take my Take will. My will. Oh, 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 yeah. Come on, come on, in Jesus' name. Take my will. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, yes, Lord. Come on, lift up your hands and talk to him for a few moments. Come on, lift up your voice, tell him. Lift up your voice. Lift 
more time. Let's give God some praise tonight.